Dear Gratitude, an anthology is out. With over 50 different perspectives and stories on gratitude, this book captures what most books don't. The secret sauce is in the number of voices and stories where you'll be sure to find a personal connection to so many as I did. A really excellent book, David Freeman. Found exclusively on Amazon.com. Hi, I'm Chris Palmer, and I got my buddy Peter B. Williams in Hong Kong. How you doing this morning, buddy? Very well, thanks, Chris. It's Monday morning here, and uh, it's I've actually taken a couple of days off to go on a little adventure that maybe I'll describe later in the in the show. But today, I'm I'm really excited to have uh, Kate Stone um, appearing live from LA, and uh, just to hear her story, and also. Uh, just to explain how we met and and how that's an extension of our ideas around productive accidents and serendipity and adventure. Sweet. Well, real quickly, do you want to um, share shortly about your book and kind of about what we're doing here a little more? Sure. So this time last year, I was writing my uh, book that I'd, I'd been working on for, I don't know, I guess I'd had the content for about six years. And the core idea is around, it started out as, a, as an idea from business school around how does innovation happen, but it's evolved into a framework for making decisions and life more broadly uh, and how you can turn your life into an adventure by being the bridge between a whole really diverse mix of, of people, industries, locations, mindsets, and you know something that's routine in someone else's life could be revolutionary to mine and vice versa so these random conversations um have i guess evolved out of the book and and how we met chris and we've just been collaborating um you know organically and iterating and and you know just experimenting and uh i think that will resonate with kate i think she is um always experimenting she has um, an interesting um, series of presentations where she brings in Brave Kate versus regular Kate, and uh, maybe she'll make an appearance here today as well. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Excellent. Well, just speaking in that, you know, this is this is an extension of your book and your idea, and we uh, we keep having conversations, meeting amazing people, and having new experiences. So, let's bring Kate in. Hello, Kate. Welcome. Hi, 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 hi. Wonderful to be here. So glad Thank for you to be here. Thank you. I, I'm going to start with just one really basic question, and it might, it might, you know, be, be an extended introduction. But I just want to know your story. Like, if someone said, "Okay, what is your story?" How would you respond to that? Did you say we ha only had one hour? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> we'll make a start. We, we can come back and do part B, part C, whatever we need. You know what I was thinking last night? I was thinking I should try and write down my story in three minutes. Like if I had to write my story in three minutes, yeah. what, what would it be? Actually, because I saw a room on Clubhouse that was something like, is your life, could your life be a film? Speak with like movie producers and, and tell your life story in three minutes. I was like, oh my God, is, how can I tell my story in three minutes? So I don't know. Let me think. Okay. Um, so I was born in Cheshire in the UK. Um, I, I am a strange child. I used to hide wires and switches and speakers and microphones under the carpet and behind the walls. Um, and I would then, oh, I'd also open up my, my siblings' toys and try and put them back together and then wondered where the remaining parts went. 
never really sometimes i'd get them back together but they'd never work um and then i'd hide in the loft and i'd call my siblings in and then i'd speak through the through the microphone and use the switches to make my voice come out of like under the bed or behind the bookcase or something like that so i i kind of really liked creating a world around me that wasn't quite as it appeared and and but it was never about what i created it's never about the things that I made or maybe invented. Um, it was always about the reaction that somebody had, what experience they had when when they kind of fell into my into my into my web of weirdness. Um, I guess I also remember once taking one of my dad's favourite books, carving the inside out. It was Captain Hornblower, and um, hiding a radio transmitter that I'd built, hiding it next to my parents, creeping off back to the bedroom, tuning in the radio and listening to what they said. Not cool. Not, not <laughs> cool. I learned that unhearing is more difficult than hearing. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't normally talk about this, but you know, it's all part of my story, I guess. Um, I also had a secret for most of my life um, that, you know, underneath the clothes that I wore for nearly 40 years of my life was another set of clothes at times um, because, you know, because I'm trans. And so I spent most of my life terrified presenting as a guy, but terrified that anyone would find out that inside um you know i'm really a woman um but the kind of you know the crazy thing is is that in my late 30s or during my 30s um after going on this kind of crazy journey through living in different parts of the world and australia and traveling through asia and i also worked in mad dog central for a while serving cocktails um in hong kong um um was that i ended up starting my own business and my the business ended up being how to turn ordinary objects into magical interactive objects that were somehow connected um and what i ended up doing was exactly what i was doing as a kid that the things that i made which were now for things for brands like pizza hut mcdonald's and hershey's and ikea were these sort of delightful everyday looking objects that could do something magical. So what I'd done as a child that I was hiding in the bedroom and thought was weird, turned out to be the beginnings of my career, right? And at the same time as starting that business, um, I ended up in a situation where I had no choice but to be brave and come out as being trans. And you know, and over that decade, which has now been like 10, 15 years, I guess, as I've grown my business, I realized that, that what I did as a child was my strength and that what I hid underneath my clothes um, which was I thought was my greatest weakness turned out to be my greatest strength. It turns out that me being me and embracing who I am in all my weirdness is my greatest strength, not my greatest weakness, and is my superpower. So I kind of learned that, like, you know, it just like you tear off the clothes and reveal who's underneath, like one of the superheroes in the film, like life just gets better. And so, you know, that's when I discovered all my superpowers and just so many so many amazing things happen and now oh, i end up living in la um yeah so much so much cool stuff to talk <laughs> about from what you just spoke about you know i mean i think that the fact that you realize what you were doing as a child was your superpower yeah. I, you know and i think that's a recurring thing things that are seem super obvious can, are the hardest to see you know yeah. um and i've seen that with with our eldest daughter um I, I got, when I moved to Hong Kong 11 years ago um, from Singapore, where we were for nine and before that Australia, um, they, I, I got to interact with the, the curators of TEDx and there are a whole bunch of different platforms. So TEDx Hong Kong, TEDx Wan Chai, TEDx Happy Valley, TEDx Women, TEDx Education, TEDx Youth. 
And the people from TEDxU said, hey, um, we're looking for some teenagers that are doing cool stuff. Do you know anyone? And I started thinking about my daughter's friends who are doing film, and I thought, oh, yeah, they were kind of interesting. And then it felt like a revelation to think, oh, no, my daughter is a great drummer and she's been doing poetry. Wow. Why don't I, in, you know, invite her? That's a, the obvious one, but it really felt strange that I hadn't yeah. thought of that myself or yeah. earlier. And and that's what happened. So she performed drums with her drum teacher on The Power of Music and, and why learning an instrument is, is good. Amazing. And, um, yeah, anyway, so that, that was a bit of a revelation. I think, you know, it sounds like you've had something similar when you realise you connected the dots that you'd stumbled across I mean, talk about what you have invented. It's to me, it's like printed instruments that are somehow Bluetooth enabled, and you can control them from anywhere, sort of thing. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I mean, I have some things around me. Let me see if I can make this do something. Um, this um, this is a poster we made with a music studio in Brooklyn called Ant Food, um, and this poster is an intergalactic alien music remixing rap battle. And when <laughs> you of course and when you touch when you touch different parts it plays the music or it should yeah and then the characters rap yeah, and so, anyone can program these, or it, like yeah, you, you sell these you as little packages for kids to play with. Yeah, you, yeah, you can do. So we make we make these. We've done these for brands and advertising, sort of experiential advertising, but we do also make a kit where people can print out their own graphic, put their own sounds on, um, yeah, and make their own things. So, yeah, do you need a special printer to do that, or so what? Well, they're, they're screen printed, but but what we do is we print we print these stickers that already have all the touch points on them, um, mm. and then a little circuit board, and you just stick it on some foam board, press the little circuit board on the back with the speaker and the batteries, print out your own graphic or draw on it, um, and because it works through the paper, so you can put whatever paper you want over the top, and then we do a Bluetooth version um, with my baseball cap, but I've actually taken the insides out i don't know where they are but normally when i wear this when i touch it it triggers air horns gunshots and various noises so that's my dj hat um, and um oh i don't think i have this running um this is a book that connects to bluetooth to my phone and when you touch different parts it triggers um it triggers a music remix and this piano notebook um it's a notebook for musicians, for songwriters. So a notebooks are supposed to make notes, right? So the songwriter can write their notes in there, but then when they've got an idea of what it sounds, they fold out the, the Bluetooth keyboard um, and then it connects to the phone and they can play their music on there. Um, and then they can save that in their phone. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and the idea is just, you know, what if ordinary objects, mm. ordinary everyday objects could have technology that's hidden inside yeah, and then just do something magical. So yeah, you know. And are you, are you a DJ as well? Well, no, but I tell my I tell my kids that on paper, I'm the best DJ in the world. There you go. And that's the truth. It's the truth. I'm the only, I'm in the only uh, DJ who's on paper, but, but I tell you, um, I think, do I have it? Oh yeah. Actually, one of the best DJ in the world, the best scratch DJ in the world is, is potentially DJ Qbert and um, 
he he saw so i did a ted talk a few years ago or i actually did a couple of ted talks a few years ago but um he asked, he's i dj'd in it and then he asked if i could make his album cover so we made this album oh, cover oh, wow. for his album that came out oh wow it's cool right and then there are these paper bluetooth dj decks that that, that are paper thin oh, um, yeah. and they connect to the phone and you can actually dj and crossfade i i might I didn't plan to do this. I might see if I can uh, play video. Video? Okay. I, I will reappear, I think. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Um, okay. Yeah, that's. Is that sound coming through? Yeah. Yeah, it is. How long ago was this? Uh, this was maybe six years ago or something, I think. And have you done more similar sort of? Oh yeah, lots and lots and lots of things. So I mean to see, because I, I didn't set this up properly. So so um, it normally works with all my shortcuts. But um, yeah, so we made a few years ago, we made something for Pizza Hut. Mm -hmm. So pizza box, and this was printed in limited release, I guess, right? It wasn't yeah, available. yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this guy has no enthusiasm for a world first. <laughs> <laughs> and you go to the music festivals um, promoting this stuff too, right? Like Coachella. Yeah, and, yeah, like yeah. Um, What's your favorite? <laughs> Favorite uh, festival you've been to so far? Um, hang on, let me get myself back. <laughs> um, oh gosh, favorites for different reasons, I guess. Um, mm, but I did really enjoy Nocturnal Wonderland um, in in LA in San Bernardino, which is an insomniac festival. And we made a midi garden, so we made like this garden that had like these two meter mandalas on the floor and these cardboard trees with paper flowers and bowls of water and it all connected to a sound system to to um a nasa space sound um mix um and when you touch the flowers or step on the mandalas it triggers all these loops and you get all this ambient noise starts to be generated and you kind of fall into this kind of trippy trippy mix and you know the, the festival guys were a little confused because they were on a trip and they hadn't even you know, started doing what they do at the festivals. Yeah, <laughs> I um a couple of ideas are popping up. So, have you ever been to Fuji Rock Festival in Japan? No, no. So that's the one I've been to the most three times, camping with our daughters, and and it's been an amazing adventure. Front row for the Cure and Chemical Brothers in the most oh, recent wow. one. And it got it blocked out by by COVID, but it's definitely going to be part of our you know annual adventure to go to yeah. Japan and, and so on. So. Be cool to get you there one day. Um, That'd be amazing. It would be amazing. To one to one Clock and Flap here in Hong Kong. It's kind of our version of, of Coachella. Um, Three-day music festival, and they bring in international acts from all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I can connect you to those guys uh, one day. And you can come and visit Hong Kong, just like Chris is going to do, and stay at our place because we have a yeah. tradition of, of having people stay with us for, for a few weeks, including a film director from LA um, called Adrian Bellick, 
who I met him because, again, through the TEDx community, um, he was passing through Hong Kong and um, the host, Gino Yu, who's actually been on this show uh, a while ago, um, said, hey, um, there's, a, there's a dinner on tonight. Can you make it? And it was like 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, very <laughs> random. And I've just learned that whenever Gino messages with that type, type of invitation, I just have to reorganize whatever's going on that day and it's worth it. So I met Adrian at a, at, uh, a pizza place down here um, uh, and we got talking, discovered that we both grew up on BMX bikes. That got us talking for another, you know, an hour or so. Um, but what was interesting about, about Adrian is that he had couch surfed around the world for three years making a documentary about happiness. And it's called The Happy Film or The Happy Movie or something we can share the link later. But um, at the end of it, I just went, okay, you're a couch surfer, where are you staying tonight? And he said, well, I'm okay tonight, but tomorrow night. So I said, all right, come <laughs> and stay at our place. So I go home and call my wife, Catherine, and say, hey, um, there's this dude with dreadlocks who's going to come and stay with us. Are you cool? And you know, she was cool. And that became the start of a tradition of just welcoming travelers and entrepreneurs and a whole bunch of people. And in one month, I think it was the following year, because Adrian had come, come back and stayed with us, we had Adrian, the filmmaker from L.A., we had a musician from Melbourne that had come up to play at Clock and Flap, and we had a Maasai tribal dude from Tanzania. Oh, wow. Came to town speaking at an event um, about fighting poverty through education. And, you know, so I, I could write a book about the number of people that have done that. In fact, one of the chapters in Productive Accidents is on the value of, of having people just stay with you because yeah. Yeah. there's a bunch of kind of unexpected benefits. Um, first of all, we get to hang out more. You get to live a little bit like Hong Kong, walk down the escalator into Soho and the bars, and it's really close. The best bit is when my wife and I are there and our kids get to interact with this amazing mm -hmm. portfolio of people yeah. that are living these yeah. adventures. So we've got four children, but now three of them are in Australia, um, two at University of Melbourne, one at boarding school in Sydney, and our youngest, Ruby. So, um, yeah, it's been an amazing sort of just stumbled across piece of serendipity. Yeah. It's like being thrown into a Netflix show or thrown into a TED talk um, in, yep. in in real life. Um, I I I um, I call it serendipity, um, which means whenever I go on a trip, something yep. serendipitous will happen. So yeah, serendipity. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to remember that and use that. And actually, that that reminds me of some of your road trips that you've done, in particular the big one you did from Woodstock to LA. Do you want to talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, oh, I wish I had all my videos lined up for all of these things. Um, so yeah, that was last October. Um, and I wrote a little story about it. Um, and the story it's on my blog The the story is called, um, my daughter and I drove 3,200 miles to escape the zombie apocalypse. Mm -hmm. My daughter um, was 21 at the time. Well, she's 21 now, I guess, because it's not got around to the next birthday yet. <laughs> um, and um, I'll, we lived in Woodstock on a mountain. Um, and and over the last summer during COVID, our landlady sold the house. Um, and Woodstock became the, the number one destination in the USA for people to move to um, in terms of the, like the, the biggest house price rises and the most number of people moving in. So it was, mm -hmm. it was impossible to rent anywhere else to live. And my daughter really likes LA. So I was like, well, let's let's just drive to LA. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we kind of set off on the on this journey. 
um, which I think was, I think, was it 3,200 miles? I forget the number, whatever, it's something like that. Um, and it took us 10 days and we just, I don't know, we just discovered so many things, met so many awesome people. And, you know, I learned a lot about America and Americans. And we stayed with, we stayed with some friends um, along the way. Um, you know, one thing I learned is that most of America is Republican and most Americans are Democrats. And that I kind of imagine that we're just driving across this vast ocean of red. Um, and then you get to these like high mountains of, of blue. And, and that's, you know, the number of people per area that vote a certain way. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was the time of the election, really. Um, you know, so we'd end up, you know, there was a time when we were near Lake Erie, I think it was, or Erie. And um, there was this like massive procession of all of these cars, all of these trucks with Trump flags driving past us and you know it's just people following their party but you know i know it really intimidated my daughter it made her really scared actually it made her really very very uncomfortable just to see to see all of that you know um and you know so so, so we're kind of like driving through the countryside and you're going past gun shop gun shop gun shop gun shop and then you know we got like to ann arbor or you know these these sort of liberal cities and then it's weed store weed store weed store weed store <laughs> um you know and and there's just these very different perspectives that each side holds mm. that totally makes sense for them mm. where they live and their their experience mm -hmm. and and each side doesn't have the experience that the other has and then each interprets what the other does and believes from the set of values and the way that they live their life. So they each see the other doing things that make absolutely no sense and seem horrific, mm. selfish, and you know, and abusing the rights of, of the other. But you know, when you take the time and take time to listen to people and see both sides, you realize that both sides make sense and they're both yeah. saying saying very, you know, very, very similar things. So we were like, we're driving through, I guess it's South Dakota, um, and you know, it's from like you go into stores and it's like, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no shirt, no shoes, no entry. But then they're not wearing any masks. And it's like, I don't really care about the shoes and the shirts, but, you know, shouldn't you be wearing a mask? And, and it's like, you know, because they're like, this abuses our right. But yet it's OK for store owners to stop people from not from coming in and with no shoes mm -hmm. and no no shirts. But but it's not OK for them anyway. Don't understand. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> You, I think you're highlighting the, the importance of empathy, right? So when I did one Absolutely. of Seth workshops, um, the, the Alt MBA, it's kind of like a one-month accelerated writing workshop. And, you know, it starts out with setting your goals and having a wheel of life and, you know, ranking yourself out of 10 on all these dimensions, you know, education, health, um, spiritual, whatever it is. Um, mm. And then the second one was around, you know, the importance of, um, realizing that sunk costs, you know, just that they shouldn't prevent you from doing whatever you want to do yeah. in the future. And I think you've lived that pretty much. Uh, the third one was about empathy. Take something you believe yeah. and now take the opposite view and research it and write a convincing piece of work from that point of view. Exactly. Rewires your brain. Yeah. So, yeah. Like you're yeah. saying, you know, you have to spend time getting to know these people. So StoryCorps did a great um, project. I don't know if you're familiar with StoryCorp, where they had a um, recording studio, Grand Central Station, and they encouraged children to come in and interview their parents and grandparents, and then they would send it up to the cloud, and it's like a time capsule. 
But I, I love what they do because now they've they won the TED Prize, they turn it into an app. You can do it from anywhere. And during um, COVID and during um, the Trump years, they were encouraging people from different ends of the spectrum to come together and talk about what they had in common. And by the end of it, they realized, oh, it's almost everything, you know? So yeah. I thought that was a useful exercise. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I tried yeah. to write about in, in the story that I wrote. So, you know, yeah. I, I write the story of the journey um, yeah. and, and then at the end, I write a little bit about just the simple things in life, you know, guns, religion, politics. But I try to write it, just a little sentence on each, so that people reading it might not necessarily know which point of view I have, because I try to yeah. write it from both points yeah. of view, you yeah. know? Because, yeah. you know, I mean, to people living in the city, the idea of the, the you're on the subway or wherever and you see a gun, like the sight of, the, of a gun absolutely terrifies you. It makes absolutely no sense to own a gun and live in the city. You know, mm. guns are things that are used to to kill people. When you see a gun, you do not feel safe. Whereas when you live out, you know, in the country, if you don't have, you know, a shotgun by your bed, a handgun by the door, you know, and a rifle wherever, where there might be like wild animals or, you know, like bears or, or whatever, like if you don't have that gun, you don't feel safe. So for both sides, it represents a feeling of not feeling safe um, yeah. with directly the opposite opposite points points of view. And and we're all just people who've lived different journeys and end up with, with different perspectives. And, you know, we... we um, so we kind of got stranded in a snowstorm. We were driving mm -hmm. through Montana, and then, and it was it? We ended up in Wyoming, and there's this person that I'd met on Facebook, never actually met in person, and um, she thought I was a crazy lady because I'd been camping in Montana and camped and slept out for three nights on my own and not told anyone where I was and slept on a mountain. So she already had a weird opinion of me. Anyway, the weather got worse and worse and worse. It got later and later and later, and we were going to go and stay at their house. Never met them before, and we ended up just about making it to the end of this dirt track where the weather got so bad and the snow got so deep we couldn't drive any further and we had to go into this house and i was terrified and the curtains twitched and you know and this lady came out in this nightgown you know she didn't have a shotgun in her arms but she might as well have um you know and then we went in and there's like there is a handgun by the door and you go in and there's like every animal you can think of has its head on the wall you know there's even a stuffed wolf and um, there's elk moose um deer um all of them and then they showed us she showed us down to the basement and my daughter and i were sleeping in two bedrooms in the basement um and then when we came up the next morning her husband went there who we'd never met and he's wearing his cowboy hat his big boots and the and the and the buckle um and he's he was like he's like 70 something and he was really gruff um and um he was like oh, what are you doing in my house <laughs> and then and then he's like shouting at his dogs um who's shouting like Get down, you little mutt. If you carry on doing that, I'm going to send you back to the pound. Anyway, turns out he has two Purple Hearts. He's an ex-Green Beret, served in Vietnam, um, and I don't know where else. And you mentioned any other race, and his first comment was like, we didn't kill enough of them. But they turned, you know, they both turned out to be, to be liberals, really, architects, and absolutely wonderful and delightful people. But yeah. I could so easily have held a, a different opinion. And yeah. hearing that some of their life story, you know, gave me a story. That, that's why I love that question, you know, what is your story? And that's, you know, yeah. where it came from. I don't know if you ended up meeting Patrick Itt, I tried to introduce you to yeah. from Baller Dinners. Did you meet him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when he came up with this idea of baller dinners, which was, you know, bring 10 people together and talk about how to solve the world's problems. 
that evolved into three questions. What is your story? What projects are you working on? And how can I help? And I've hosted 10 of them here. And when I went to um, New York, you know, you just send out a message on that Facebook group, say, hey, I'm there from Monday to Friday. I've got Monday night free. Is anyone available? Someone you don't even know will jump on and say, yep, I've booked a restaurant. 10 people you don't even know will converge. And you've got the framework for the conversation. And so, so many lifelong friends have come out of that. Um, Talk about the TEDx talks that you gave, you know, just high level. What were the themes? Yeah. So it was, when was the first one? The first one. So I've done a few TEDx's. I did it, did it, I accidentally, I accidentally ended up doing a TEDx um, in Amsterdam, um, which was a TED audition. Um, because I I bumped into on a station platform um, the people that run TED, so you know people like uh, Chris and, yeah. and and Helen and you know was it Helen I don't know. anyway anyway the people who run TED I bumped into them on train platform for a totally random reason um, and they said oh, and I showed them all my staff and they're like oh you must come to Amsterdam in a few weeks and speak at a TEDx in Amsterdam because it's an audition for TED so I did that. And then um, um, I was one of the ones, one of the two that were picked to go to TED main stage and speak at TED in Long Beach. Um, wow. And so I went to that, did that, I think it was 20, 2012, 2013, maybe. Um, and I spoke about my work and the t- title of the talk is DJ Dex made out of paper. So in that I speak about my journey and you know, when I traveled to Australia and sheep and all of that and my PhD and uh, electrons. And then I demo my work and then, and then I DJ a DJ at the end and make some air horn noises. And DJ Cuba saw that talk and then that's how I ended up doing the album cover. Um, That was cool. And then I also, from that, ended up doing a TEDx at Burning Man, um, (laughs) which which was cool. And you know that thing when people say, if you're doing a talk and you're really nervous, just imagine the audience has no clothes on. You've done that? It's true. They didn't life. have clothes on. <laughs> it was Burning Man. The audience didn't have clothes on. I had clothes on. I had clothes on, but members of the audience didn't have clothes on. Not all of them, but some of them. So that that really happened. Um, and then um, th- this this is where it get, this this takes story takes a turn for the worst. It it gets gory. I'm going to put myself out there and tell you this is probably the goriest story you've ever heard in your life. Um, so a couple of people had met a Burning Man and some of my other friends. Um, later on that year, so w- almost one year since I done, did the TED talk, we met um, for Christmas in Scotland um, at, and, at an Airbnb and stayed there for a few nights um, in this really remote place. It was really cool. And then one night we were walking home from the pub um, and then there was a wild deer that ran through the forest um, running away from some people. And, and I had no flashlights because I'd given them to my friends and it, it ran straight into me and its antlers went straight through my throat. So it gored me through the throat. That's why I have a big scar on my throat um, and left me lying on the forest floor like a character out of the Game of Thrones. And I'm like lying there like, okay, well, I've done everything the best I think I can in my life. So, you know, I'm like, I'm grateful. I'm grateful and I have no regrets. And I know I'm going to die right now. And um, and I just focused on my breath and just enjoyed each half breath as, you know, the next step of the rest of my life. Um, and I kind of felt like a character in the Game of Thrones. You know, like, like, I don't know about you, but in the film of my life, which is what I live every day, I'm the main character, right? Um, and like in the Game of Thrones, you think there's the main character and then suddenly, boom, they're on the forest floor and they're dead. I was like, holy shit, the writers have written me out of my own fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> and then I woke up from a coma, um, you know, a, a week later or, or, or so, um, to 
then a few months later and i lay in hospital not knowing you know not knowing if i'd ever walk or eat or talk for months and then discovered that the newspapers in the uk had made a headline out of me being trans one of the newspapers in scotland on the front page wrote the headline sex swap scientist gored by stag and so that led me on a totally horrific it led me on a this journey to be like okay i'm going to use my superpower which is kindness um, and I'm going to use that to try and make the newspapers less likely to do this to anyone again. And to do that, I'm going to sacrifice what I hold most dear, which is my privacy. Because in the first TED Talk, as far as I know, I'm the first openly trans person to have ever, ever spoken on the TED main stage, doing a main stage TED Talk. And I was really proud of doing that. And then no one making an issue out of it because I spoke about my work because the trans thing is boring. And the newspapers one year later, after that talk, suddenly made it a thing. Anyway, with kindness, I embraced them. I became friends. They like me now. Um, I ended up writing the headlines, one of which was I wrote a headline on a BBC News show that was the stag trampled my, on my throat and the press trampled on my privacy. I realized that sensational headlines sell. It was the most read piece of BBC News that day, so that was kind of cool. Yeah. I went on the evening news, told the story to the anchor as the headline in the UK for five minutes. Amazing. And I became friends with the editors, and they made me into um, a press regulator. So I still, six years later, sit on a committee in the UK that writes the rules for the British press. Anyway, the reason I say all that is because that turned into my second TED talk. And yeah. so my second TED talk was, um, I don't know, it was something about the, the, it was about that. It was about the being gored and the newspapers. So yeah. um, I love the way that you <laughs> turned them into allies effectively and oh, yeah. made them realize how wrong they were. That's the yes. most amazing thing. So yeah, yeah um, I want everyone to watch that talk and both your talks actually, but um, thank you for, for doing what you did. And I've got a, a friend here in Hong Kong who runs a, a charity that helps homeless people mm -hmm. and their tagline is hashtag kindness matters. And, yeah. and it's, it's amazing, you know, like he, he started out a blog and again, just through a productive accident, I think he had six other friends and they all took a day of the week to write about whatever they cared about. So someone was writing about design, someone was writing about, who knows, whatever, art, and he, he wrote about kindness. And then he worked out, okay, the other people fell away, they, they got on with their lives, but he kept on writing his blog about kindness. And then he tried to think of ways he could make it, bring it to life. And they ended up doing walks of a poor area in Hong Kong around, I think, Shamshipo, and distributing water and boiled eggs and fruit to homeless people. And eventually called for volunteers and, and, and it just sort of, you know, snowballed. And now they have a kitchen that serves, I don't know, hundreds of meals a day. They've helped about 200 people, um, you know, earn their trust yeah. and respect back into, you know, accommodation and, and employed some of them. And, um, yeah, I'm inspired by what, what they've done. And he's gone on to create multiple other um, not-for-profits, one uh, called Love 21 that helps um, families and, and people with Down syndrome. He's created this event space, uh, a dance studio, an indoor sport facility, and art and craft. And so that's another one. Then he's, he's created a, a clothing store called One of a Kind where it's, it's actually not used clothes. It's actually just excess stock from mm -hmm. companies. Hey, you're doing good work. We'll give you this stuff for, for nothing. Mm -hmm. And you raise money for, for what you're doing. 
Um, yeah, and I just find it amazing that in three years he's created these three groups, and again, all powered yeah. by kindness. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's when you so come to the rock, yeah, it's so powerful, and you know, it, obviously, it does so much for the people that those charities benefit from. But for anyone that's involved, that you know, th there are two key ingredients that humans need to thrive. One of them is a sense of belonging to community, and the other is, is to have a sense of meaning in your life. And so, you know, if you can use kindness um, to try and change people and to do things, it ends up immersing you in community. And it ends up giving you meaning in your life, and and though, and so you actually benefit so much from using that superpower of, of kindness. Um, I called myself a kindness ninja, um, you know, in 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 why I did, and you know, it's because I don't know, you know, you know, my kindness and my kindness ninja with the newspapers was was I used to say that you know, in my mind, a ninja slips through the shadows, skips over the roof, and climbs through the sewers. You know, so so you know, if you don't attack people. Um, then they're defenseless and then you can get through their defenses and and so through kindness you can get to people and you can help you can help move people to understanding mm. things you know and that's how I was able to work with the editors and you know not only did they change the stories the headlines they wrote newspaper articles since that are just about me and are really positive yeah, of <laughs> so there's just these amazing stories that you just reminded me i did an article um on linkedin it was during it was in the lead up to the original trump election so you know early mid 2016 i think brexit mm -hmm. was happening and it made me realize that trump was actually a gift in some ways because he was highlighting that there were so many people that were hurting and yeah. all, all all the Democrats had to do was say, oh, thank you for highlighting that. Now yeah. I'm going to spend all my attention getting to know the people yeah. that are hurting and, and try to solve them. Instead yeah. of calling them... Uh, deplorables. Deplorables. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Who was the PR person that said that was a good I idea? Know. I know. That's no. the worst. No. No, and these are people who are crying out for help, you know, and the same for Brexit. Brexit is those people crying out for help, you know. And when I lay in a, co in a coma... I saw that world. I, I saw a world that was destroyed, destroyed by war. I, 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 saw, I saw a world that was destroyed by war. I saw the US as a place that had bombs dropping on it and being destroyed. And, and, it, and, and the underclass in the US were collaborating with people to destroy their own communities. Mm. And when I asked them why, why, why are they dancing in the street as their own country is burning? They said, because we've lost everything. We have nothing. And so, you know, our, our job is to press reset um, on 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 society and you know and and our lives will be at worst the same or if not better and so I believe that Brexit and Trump were people who were hurting pressing reset and the more the more the people who they perceived as the ones that were benefiting from their loss the more they cried and complained about Brexit and Trump the more they thought it's something that's hurting them so maybe it'll it'll help us yeah yeah Hey, um, how did you end up in Australia? What's going on there? You, you said you worked in Outback. So I'm from Australia, like you know, yeah. Armidale, New South Wales, between Sydney and Brisbane. So where did you go and why were you there? How long were you, you know, what were you doing? Well, I, I like to joke that, so uh, the, uh, I fa basically failed school and I like to joke that my parents bought me a one-way ticket to Australia because I failed school. Um, <laughs> the, the truth is they bought me a round-trip ticket, but I stayed so long that the round-trip thing expired. Um, so I, I arrived in Australia at 20 years old in Melbourne. 
late at night. I didn't know a single person. I had $400. I had nowhere to stay. I didn't know where I was going to go. Um, and I remember the, the, the airport doors closing behind me. And that's like, oh my gosh, that's the rest of my life and everything. Other side of the world is behind me. Um, I got a cab to a hotel. And then the next day I went to a youth hostel and made friends, met people, ended up getting jobs, cleaning toilets, moving desks, working in. I worked in Target's warehouse, stacking boxes. And then I ended up traveling to Mildura and places, picking grapes, working on farms, and went to Broken Hill, got a job on a sheep farm out 50 miles north of Broken Hill, a sheep a sheep farm called Palamico, um, on a dirt road with a five-mile five mile dirt driveway out to the farm. And I, I, I worked there for a couple of years. Um, Chasing sheep, shearing sheep. I only sheared three sheep, so that's a lie. Killing sheep. More than I've ever done, don't worry. I had to kill sheep. I had to kill sheep with a knife, slit their throat and chop them up and make them maybe into... Maybe that's where the deer came, came from. You know, a bit of maybe, maybe it did. And Every day we had sheep. And, if you, you know, so you had to... So, yeah, so I did that for a few years. And uh, I travelled around for three years, drove around Australia a few times, drove across the desert. Well Drove from Ayers Rock to Kalgoorlie. That was a crazy trip. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I proper lived in the amazing. outback. And, well because, you know, when we, when we were living in Singapore, we, we had a book called Are We There Yet? And it was about an English family that had gone to Australia and, and driven around Australia. And I always thought, okay, if our kids finish school in June, they're, they're Australian schools is calendar year, so they'd start in January. Maybe that six months could be used to yeah. do a loop. But yeah. obviously it hasn't happened because our eldest daughter is 22. She's in Melbourne and our second daughter's just there now, nearly 19. Um, but I'll get them to watch uh, your your story here as well and, and uh, might yeah. get them inspired to maybe go for a lap. But when I worked in London, so before children, my wife and I lived in London in 97, I had colleagues that had never been to Paris. And I'm like, God, what are you doing? You know, like I haven't been to Ayers Rock, but I'm pretty sure I'd rather go to Paris, you know, and it's so easy to get to. But it's just you get used to your little scale of life and and it seems you you know, too hard to do something like that um, there are people in la who've never seen the ocean there are people in new york who've never been to manhattan yeah it's crazy all right that's part of our mission is to get people to you know from here there are people that live in hong kong island that have never been to kowloon things like that you know you hear those stories as well um yeah are we going to see a bit of brave kate today oh Okay, maybe I need to, um, let me think. Um, well, so let me think. So, so uh, yeah, other K, other K, um, so what I discovered last year during the pandemic, because I started doing my talks and I wanted to do my talks that were more like, felt more like a TV show than, a, than, than, than taking what I do on stage and doing it on a Zoom call, which is really boring. So I kind of watch shows like CNN and stuff like that, where they normally have a guest comes in and they interview a guest about some other thing. And so I was like, well, I don't have a guest. So how am I going to bring in another guest? So I invented a character, which is Other Kate. So I don't know if you can hear Other Kate, because I'm not sure if I've done the audio right. But oh, hey, yeah. where are you? Oh, amazing. Um, we're talking about something that I've totally forgotten what we're talking about. What can you tell us? Oh, see, I don't know. Well, um, when she says hiking trips, these yeah. things usually end up. So that's how other Kate works. And and uh, but but then it made me it made me really it made me realise that I do have other people in my head. Um, I don't know if you do. I don't know if you people that have narrative because you know most people have narrative. Some people don't. But you know, kind of like I'm laying in bed in the morning and it's like, 
oh, it's time to get up. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's another half hour because I can I know I can actually still make that that call if I just have my shower in two minutes. I'm like, no, but you really should get out of bed. And it's like, no, I'm gonna okay, I'm gonna have 15 minutes. There's narrative going on, right? So there's another version of me, you know, and it's like, oh, I really want to go on that hike and climb that mountain. And it's like, oh, I don't want to, whatever. Anyway. I then realized that, you know, there's this other Kate and, and she does the things that I'm terrified to do. So I'm lazy. I sit on the couch, don't like getting out of bed in the mornings. Whereas other Kate, she climbs the mountain. Um, other Kate walks out into the middle, the middle of Montana and does that crazy hike. Or other Kate's the one who will go on stage and, and, and do the TED talk. And the thing is, is we, we all have we all have this other Kate or this other person inside of us who can do those things. Um, when when we're terrified oh she brings me tea sometimes so if i feel like i need a cup of tea um <laughs> then she'll bring me the tea <laughs> um, well, listen, well done yeah um yeah so everyone has another and you know if you like lean into that other and identify the other because th then you can be like i know i feel lazy right now and it's okay i'm going to lean into being lazy because i know the other version of me does those super superhero things um, yeah. you know that I'm that I'm too scared too well, scared to do you're talking about being kind to yourself right and just recognizing you know managing your energy is just as important as managing your time and, and everything else definitely um, yeah. yeah we don't have yeah. to be that hero all the time and we do we do have to be kind we do have to be kind on kind to ourselves and not berating ourselves that we're not doing those things in that moment because we know the other version of us will step up and do it. And for now, I'm going to kick back and just do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was beating myself up for not finishing this book because I had the content for so long. And it was this time last year that I, I did the creatives workshop, which is, again, it's a spin-off of, of um, some of Seth Godin's things. And what was great about that workshop was <clears throat> it was for anyone that was trying to create anything. So, um, and the idea was to, 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 to try and complete a 100-day streak in whatever that is. And so if you're a poet, pick up your pen every day for 100 days and write a poem. If you're a musician, pick up your wow. guitar. And for me, if I picked up my laptop for five minutes, um, then I put a dot. I, I literally drew a little 10 by 10 grid beside the bed on a piece of cardboard. And you'd get up in the morning, you'd see this piece of cardboard, and you go, oh, okay, I need to do a dot today. And if I picked up the laptop for five minutes, five minutes usually became 10 or 15 mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even if you didn't feel like writing, you yeah. did research on how do I set up a website? How do I, what software am I using? Vellum, you know, what's, what, what website, Squarespace. And then, then you realize that you can actually sell your book directly and you can bypass Amazon and you learn more skills through that, right? Suddenly you can have a digital, whatever, commerce thing. Um, and a hundred days later, I had the, the draft completed and, and then, you know, it wow. evolved into these other things. But how I met... Chris was, a, you know, an extension of some of these productive accidents because people in that workshop, someone mentioned a thing called gratitude and pasta. A guy called Chris Shembra in New York hosts dinners in his apartment or in his, his courtyard. Um, I think he's in Chelsea in New York. And normally they're, they're physical, but because of COVID, it had flipped to, to virtual. And I wrote to him and said, hey, you do your dinners at, at I think it's 7.47 p.m. New York. That's 7.47 a.m here in Hong Kong, you do dinner, I have breakfast and, you know, and I just jump on. And that extended into him introducing me to Chris Palmore because he has a gratitude space project um, around trying to create opportunities for people to express their gratitude. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it evolved into writings, you know, um, some essays for his books, gratitude for uh, Dear Gratitude and then Dear 2020. And then I've invited lots of friends to participate, which has been great for them because not everyone is thinking about writing books, but if you can take, you know, do yeah. training wheels and write a hundred words and suddenly it's published, then yeah. for sure you're more likely to probably go on and complete a, you know, a full book at some point. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Have you I mean, you... Sorry. Have you written a book? No, I have the same, pro I have this problem. Like I want to write a book. I have an outline of a book. I, I want to write a book. I just, I just, you know, I'm not getting around to it. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to write essays at the moment. Yeah. Like every few weeks I'm trying to write an essay. So I'm writing an essay at the moment. Yeah. which is and the essays are like two and a half pages you know so that it's a 10 minute 10 minute read um so the essay that i wrote this week which i'm sort of recording as a video actually i was doing it today is 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 called does my butt look big in this um and it's <laughs> it's an it's an essay about um answering the question do i prefer la or new york um and and actually what i've realized is you shouldn't judge a thing as whether you like it or not, a person, a place, a job, or you know, or an item of clothing by it in itself. So, do I like LA? I don't know. Do, you know, do I like this item of clothes? I don't know. But you should wear it. And how do I look when I wear it? And I know since being in LA, I've lost thirty-five pounds. I look different. <laughs> you know, so many things. I'm, I'm a, you know, I look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, damn, girl, LA looks good on you. So, you know, it kind of made me realize that to know if you like something, you know, if you, if, you know. You know, if yeah. you have dinner with a friend, when you're going there, do, do you feel joyful? You know, are you excited? How does it, how does having dinner with them look on you when you look at yourself in the mirror? So that's kind of what I, what I realized, you know? And so oh, I will write, write a little essay about that. But I really want to write a book called A Future That Looks More Like the Past Than the Present. Mm -hmm. um, and there are six reasons why I believe the future might look more like the past than the present. Um, one is invisible technology. Um, so technology is invisible. The other is nostalgic design. We tend to design things through a lens of nostalgia. You combine those two, you end up with old fashioned things with technology embedded in that you can't see. The third one is friction, recognizing that instead of removing friction from our lives, we should develop tech that adds friction to our lives it's because friction makes every mo moment meaningful, mindful and memorable. So you add that in. You've now got people wanting to prepare their own food, chop their own firewood, you know, do old fashioned things because it makes your life more meaningful. Um, what's that, the third? The other one is mind space, recognizing that half of our mind is outside our head. We have an inner mind and an outer mind. When you connect the two, you create a, a full mind. So mindfulness is when you use your senses to connect yourself to your environment to create a full mind. And so when we recognize that, when we design a space, a place, an object or a journey, we will recognize that we're actually designing the insides of people's minds. So if you design a product, you design a school, you design a prison, you design you know, a car, it is the inside of people's minds. And so I believe that could change very much mm -hmm. how we create a future. The, the fifth is resilience. That resilience is not something you store in the basement. Resilience is a lifestyle, it's how we live our lives. So if we live slightly more old fashioned lives, I don't mean necessarily more difficult, but just you know, we end up being naturally inherently more resilient, which is what I was already embracing where I was living. 
you know. And so when COVID hit, I was naturally quite resilient to it. Whereas the preppers who I knew, who had the basements with all the food stored, had no idea how to cook that food, whether it had gone off. They didn't have a tin opener. The cans were rusty. They were terrified. And the ones who didn't prepare, they were equally as screwed. And I was just like living this happy lifestyle of like, I mill my own flour, I make my own pasta and soy milk and tofu. And I'm like, you know, um, I, I'm fine. And the, the sixth one is communication. So when we use old fashioned forms of communication, I was using my ham radio a lot during, during COVID. You connect with people who are very different to you um, and you build community. And when we connect voices that are different, when we connect the most different voices in society um, and that we recognize that the quietest person in the room often has the most to say, we build a very strong and resilient community. So I believe if we take all those things and tie them together, we could paint a picture of an amazing old fashioned looking world that's futuristic, that's that's happy and resilient. So amazing. I want to write a book about that. <laughs> amazing. And you know what? I, I love all of what you've just said. Um, and you kind of reminded me of Resolve Foundation, which is another not not-for-profit here in Hong Kong that I'm, I'm on the board of. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I could tell by the fact that you bring together from diverse backgrounds. There were asylum seekers, <laughs> refugees, ethnic minorities, um, domestic workers, all coming together around a theme. The first theme three years ago was was um, racial equality and ending everyday racism. And three years ago, not many people were talking about that at dinner parties, but it became pretty important, you know, we saw in the last 12 months. The second one was around um, ending gender-based violence, which is a big theme across all parts of the gender <clears throat> spectrum, I believe. And then the third one was uh, disabilities and empowerment and right. recognizing, you know, everyone has disabilities. Some are more visible than others or less visible. Um, but, you know, you touch on this, to me, diversity and inclusion is 100% of what you just said. The reason why productive accidents works is because you're building these communities of like-minded kind of people or these tribes. And yeah. the more varied, the more likely yeah. something interesting is going to happen. And the inclusion part to me is exactly what you said. The people that aren't the loud ones in the meetings are the ones that need different opportunities to, to connect, either offline, via email, one-on-one, -on -one, whatever. You just need to give them an opportunity to hear. And that's where a lot of magical things will happen as well. Um, there were some other things you said. I've actually, I actually think you've already written a book. Like your essay about going on a road trip, you just need 10 of those essays. The one about you going back and learning how to produce all your food from scratch, that's another. You just need 10 of those and that's a book too. So I think you've got okay. two books already in production. Okay, yeah, well, you know, what I've learned this year, um, what I've learned this year is the power of intentionality. Mm. Um, and it actually came, because I wrote another essay about about free will. Um, I wrote, so I wrote this essay about free will, which is which is why, maybe it's why there's supposed to be, oh yeah, oh, that's gone horribly wrong, never mind. But that, that's, why the, that's why there's this quantum void here that exists. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is also, anyway, I'll talk about that another time. Um, I, I was exploring free will, um, and I and I came to the conclusion that the answer to what is space and time is is uh, donuts. So I think I've solved that the answer to everything in the universe is is a spiral of donuts, um, and that helped me get to this, uh, you know, sense of is the is the free will or not, which which led me to believe that um, in every moment you're free to choose to do whatever you want to do, whatever you choose is what you're always going to do, and that the very moment that you do that thing 
because time wraps round back on itself, um, ends up becoming the precedence for it to happen. So presence, mm. present is prologue for itself, which is I just found kind of really interesting. Well, I, um, I love the word responsibility, right? You have the ability to choose your response to any situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of idea. And then you, you also spoke about mindfulness. To me, riding a Vespa through the streets of Hong Kong is my version <laughs> of mindfulness because if you're not yeah. in the moment looking at 180 degrees, peripheral vision, everything else, something bad might happen. But it's yeah. a great way to just keep yourself right there. Same with skateboarding. And, and I love how you've picked up um, oh, yeah. rollerblading in, uh, down at Venice Beach, etc. So I'm having the craziest life in LA. So I don't want to be taken the wrong way. We did a road trip from LA to San Francisco back. It was, I think it was October 2019. And we stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard uh, because a friend recommended staying there because it was central. You could get to Universal Studios, all these other things. And each morning I'd go on my electric skateboard along the, you know, the Avenue of the Stars. And yeah. then he picked me up and, he, and we went and had a game of tennis the first morning we were there. Amazing. So all of these amazing things keep on happening. Um, we're at it's, the hour, but I want to hear what Chris, Chris has been absorbing all of this. I want to hear what are, <laughs> what are your reflections? What, what, are you, what are your highlights from today's conversation? Uh, well, I, I kept wanting to, uh, so, Kate, thanks for sharing your story. So I'm going to go back like a half a hour pleasure. now. Um, basically, I, uh, you know, I'm coming in very fresh where Peter knows a whole lot about you. So I, <laughs> when I was hearing things, I was wanting more details. Um, so, for example, you know, when you said I got gored by a, a, a deer, like that's the first yeah. time I'd heard that because I had not heard your TED talk. So I was really caught up in that. And when you you kept moving forward and, and I what really what I wanted to know, because I like to look back at the grateful moments like, you know, this even I normally start the podcast by asking, how did we meet each other? What were the elements that brought us into this room? Like, who were the people? What was the technology like, you know? Um, I like to think about these things as grateful moments or grateful modalities mm -hmm. that allow the present to be what it is. So when you shared that story, what I wanted to hear was, you know, you're gored, you're sitting there lying there, you're realizing you're dying. And then obviously you woke up from a coma, but who found you? Like, where's the ground? Like, how, how did you end up from being on the ground? Basically, you're going to die. Like, to being in this hospital, what were the what was the modality there? Because that was like a black void where space. Like who who found you? Can you give me a little more of that little space right there? Sure. So it was kind of midnight. It was dark. Um, you know, and I'm laying on this forest floor, and I was with friends, right? But but okay. But so I was with some friends. We were in a pub. There was a, like a Kaylee that was drinking and, and then the pub was closing and then the people who were playing the music and whatever we kind of were chatting to, they were like, oh, do you want to come down to our garden shed, listen to more music and drink whiskey? So we were like, yeah, sure, it sounds like fun. So we were following them through the forest to this garden shed. And like I said, my my friends were scared of the, some of them were scared of the dark, so I gave them my flashlights. Um, and so, and then, you know, boring detail, but one of them had dropped their bag and so they were scratching around on the floor in the darkness trying to find this bag. I didn't know this. The people who we were following started to disappear into the darkness in front of us okay. through a garden gate, and they were about to disappear. So I kind of positioned myself to almost be able to see them enough so my friends could sort of see me. So I ended up in between in this void. Um, and then when the people in front went through the garden gate, there's a stag trapped in the garden. It stampeded out, ran along the path 
it didn't see me. It ran straight into me. So I'm laying on the floor, gurgling through a hole in my throat. My friends thought I was joking or something, you know. And then my best friend was there. She was at the time training to be a doctor. Mm. Um, so she had all of the knowledge, none of the experience, um, which was terrifying for her and everything. She then called um, the equivalent, you know, of 911, 999, um, and um, trying to persuade them to actually send an ambulance because they were like not going to. So she was telling them her lungs collapsed and, you know, whatever. And then they'd carried me into the shed. Um, carried me to the shed, I think. It took 20 minutes for the ambulance to arrive. I'm just assuming I'm going to die. Right. And so, you know, I decided I am extremely grateful for my life. I was extremely grateful for everything that I've done in my life. And I mentioned the free will thing earlier on before, because I've been thinking about that a lot for a decade. Um, and I, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, everything I do in my life is what was always going to be. And if you believe that you have no capacity to have regret, you can't regret something that was always going to be. So I'm lying there knowing this is when I'm going to die. It's fine. This is how the universe was always going to unfold. It's okay. I'm grateful that I've made the best of the time I've had. And so I was able to not panic. I was able to just accept dying and focus on breath. One breath in, and then I'm alive. <laughs> One breath out. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I did. And I was very calm. Ambulance came. They managed to sort of stabilize me. Then they took me in the ambulance to the town, which was 20 minutes away. I am really conscious. I'm very mindful of my whole environment in the ambulance. So the, it's dark outside the windows. I can hear the gravel on the dirt road. Then it's tarmac. I know we're now closer to town. Then there's street lights. Okay, I know we're even closer to town. Then there's more traffic passengers. Then I'm gone. Then they got me to a small hospital, put a stent down my throat, stabilized me. Any later, and my throat would have swollen and I would have died. Then they got a helicopter, flew me from Fort William to Glasgow, and then landed the helicopter on the hospital, operated on me for many, many, many hours, put me in a coma for a week. Then I went through alternate realities, and a week later I woke up. They did not know if I would ever walk, be able to breathe through my mouth, talk, because my vocal nerves were damaged, eat or drink, um, or even if I was brain damaged or had a broken neck, they didn't know any of those things. I have footage of um, the the local journalist from Cambridge and like the, the main headline news in Cambridge was like, Cambridge scientists scored by stag and then the news starts and then the news person in the studio cuts to the person outside the hospital um, in Glasgow on the rainy night you know, Kate Stone's in there, we don't know if she's gonna live or die, you know, and so um, uh, um, Alex, um, I've forgotten his name, the, the news presenter, I've become friends with him, you know, all these years later, we still swap emails, you know, that, that you know, become friends with these people, all of these people in that whole journey. And I am grateful for every single moment, every single moment for it, the worst people, the worst moments, you know, even, even the editor of the newspaper that wrote the worst article, I spent, several days in his office um touring the printing presses and stuff like that and you know what we're talking about we're talking about my work and maybe how we can work together maybe how my tech can be used in their industry um which is is just kind of is kind of crazy because 
the worst moments in my life are the things I'm most grateful for because they've turned out to be the most powerful moments in my life. Um, yeah, that's a bit more detail. <laughs> no, that, was, that was amazing. Thank you. I'm glad Thank you asked. Yeah, no, I, I, there's just a thinking like in a situation like that, there's so many elements that had to come into play for you to be just talking yesterday about, right? Like your friend who's going to med school, having an understanding and then this all, you know, it's, yeah. it took a village. Either, and I love how you then pointed out like these people didn't know if I was going to wake up this and that, but everybody was like, okay, it's game time. We're going to take care of this girl. And everyone in unison just was like, here we go, here we go, here we go. And then it, it worked out. And I love how you were like saying at the piece, you had like this piece just yeah. to breathe, which is a big deal. You know, not panicking yeah. is obviously all these elements are coming to play that this just ended up keeping you alive. Uh, you know, and here you are to share the gratitude for that. And I love, I love that, you know, even like you said, the bad situation, you know, it's, I'm trying my best not to lay, you know, to do less of labeling, right? Like that, because that takes me out of like being present. If I label something as bad or good, like it just changes the outcome opposed to it's what it is. And then I could be flexible to it. So it's like, you yeah. know, if, if like in your case, I hear, you know, this person had wrote this article and had this horrible headline, but you, and it did hurt you, but you didn't like stop you from wanting to build bridges, you know? And then yeah. obviously because you're who you are and you build bridges because you're kind, you make friends yeah. and and therefore your work gets shared and here you are. And it's just uh, beautiful. Yeah. And I, I like to say that uh, there's a lot of different ways to be a catalyst for gratitude and kindness is a massive catalyst for gratitude. It just lets space for people to find their, find their breath, find their gratitude. So um, that's basically, I, I appreciate you sharing that. It was really beautiful. It seems like there's so many wonderful people that have come into your life yeah. just because of that. And so much that has come out of it, right? Yeah. Like, wow. I'm so lucky. I am so lucky for everything. I don't regret a single thing in my life. And I feel so grateful for so many things. You know, when I woke up from that coma, I couldn't move. They didn't know I'd be able to move. I couldn't breathe through my mouth. I was breathing through a tube. Um, um, I was being fed through um, a, a thing that was stuck in my vein, in, in my leg. Um, you know, I couldn't think properly. I couldn't sleep. You know, so like I, you know, there's like whatever five things that make us human are, you know, to breathe, to walk, to talk, to to move, to think. You know, I lost all of them, and then, but I was insanely grateful for being alive. I'm like, if I get none of these things back, wow, I'm alive. You know, that's amazing. You know, and then, you know, and then there's a, and then, you know, then I can start to. Well, I guess what happened was. I, I could start to think. I eventually got my mind back because the hallucinations stopped after another week and I could start to think and get my mind back. And then then they let me stand up and I, and I managed to move my legs, stand up. I threw up as soon as I stood up. So I went straight back down again and I lay there back to sleep for the next, you know, the next day I got up. I managed to walk assisted to the end of the hospital ward and around the corner. The very moment I went around the corner, my kids came to visit and they like came in the ward and was like, her bed's empty. Holy moly. Like mm. <laughs> what happened, you know? And then if it was a film, then there'd be the key change. Yeah. Then I walk around the corner. <laughs> oh my God, there she is. She's alive. And my kids run to me, you know, so I had that moment. And then, mm. but it took three and a half months for them to finally fix my throat so I could um, eat and drink. Because they got to the point after several extra operations that they didn't think that would be able, they thought they're going to have to feed me through a tube in my stomach for the rest of my life. But I, but after each of the five things, 
I got back, I was grateful. I'm like, if I get none of the other things back, if I'm in a wheelchair forever and fed through a tube and breathe through a tube, I'm grateful. And then each, you know, sort of week or month, I got one more thing back. And like, I got all of them back. I didn't think I deserved to get all, all of them back. I got all of them back. Um, I, I think you do deserve everything that's gone well in your, you know, right in your thank life. You. You're amazing. Like, definitely a, a hero. Um, <laughs> thank you. The more people learn your story, the, the better the world will be. Thank you for everything. Yeah, thank well, you. I want to say you. one last thing, Kate. You know, I, I um, thank you for sharing that again. I, I love how much the appreciation of just, it's such a, it's such, it's a beautiful thing to come what you're talking about because it's like you we we get these gifts all day long right and it's just because we yeah. have them right and it's like we're just used to having them and then when they go away you know it's like you just said all that went away but you were still conscious and i think that you know if somebody can wake up and they go i'm grateful to be alive like you're only going to have a good day you're only you know what i mean like you can just start from a place of just appreciation of breath like you said just i can think right like what a blessing that i'm here today i i yeah. wake my practice I, I'm like, I, even if the sun's not coming up, I, I had this thing where I go, I'm just grateful I'm here for the show. I get to see the show. You know what I mean? Like, I get I to sit here and see the show. And because it's, it's, it's just, it's a gift, you know, because we all know that there are a lot of people that didn't wake up this morning and they wish they did. And there's a lot of people in pain because of that. Yeah. But yet we're here. Yeah. And it is a gift, regardless of what's going on, right? Like, yeah. it's a gift. And I, I love, you're speaking yeah. from such a place of beauty where you're like, you were just grateful to be alive. And then, slowly yeah. all these things that we considered everything to us came back to you slowly and what a what a place you get to sit because what a gift because you weren't expecting it and now you've had it taken away so you appreciate it so much more it's just like when you lose somebody you know i lost yeah. my mom to cancer and that changed my life entirely because i really mm -hmm. knew what loss and pain was yeah but it was a gift yeah. But it was it, exactly. That's exactly how, how I see it. I am grateful for all of those things that happened. I mean, you know, the only negative thing is the impact it made on friends and family. But, you know, they were always going to happen. So I have right. no control over that. And, right. you know, it, it really takes it takes it can take losing everything to give you the ability to appreciate anything. There was mm -hmm. a moment at the end of the four months where um, they thought they'd finally fixed my throat because I had my hand in front of my face and I tried to breathe on my hand and I couldn't. I could not make air come out of my mouth and nose. And then they pulled the tube out of my throat, covered it over and I breathed. And I blew on my hand and I felt air going on my hand mm. and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. And I was so grateful for just being able to breathe on my hand and what an amazing gift that is to be yeah. to be given that gratitude 100 and i love the way the fact that you got each of your senses back sort of sequentially yeah. so i mean even that as a gratitude practice you know one day at a time having your senses yeah. on on repeat yeah. would be uh pretty powerful I, I stumbled across gratitude as a as, as a, you know being so important and powerful when I saw, um, I went to an event at General Assembly, you know, like night school for startups type thing. And uh, Mush Pantwani was speaking, who's also been on this program, where he said, look, what, let's say you get made redundant from your, you know, big corporate job, and suddenly you're doing your, your own thing without all the in benefits of the infrastructure around you. You have to do everything yourself. And he said the, the way to sort of 
stay motivated was just to keep things in perspective. If you've got fresh running water wherever you're living, you're already yeah. better off than 80% yeah. of the people on the planet. And, you know, the next day I was on a flight to Melbourne and I had my, I always try to carry a notebook and I'm just writing lists of things and trying to connect dots. And I'd, I'd read Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. And Seth Godin was always, you know, he's doing a daily blog for 20 years and he's saying, just ship your work, just get it out there. doesn't matter if people like it or not. Uh, and then I tried to work out, well, I'm not going to do a daily blog about business or finance. I think that'd be kind of boring, but maybe I could do a daily blog about gratitude or, and try to come up with 10,000 thank yous. And so if you do one a day, that's a 27-year yeah. project. So I'm up with 1,303 or something like that. Um, <laughs> but if I hadn't started that project, there's no yeah. way I would have written this book because post yeah. number 100 was a realisation that I had to acknowledge my younger sister-in-law who went missing when she was fruit picking in rural sort of southern New South Wales, kind of on the border of Victoria, probably not too far from where you went fruit picking when you were 20 or whatever. Um, when she went yeah. missing, she was in a gap year and she um, was supposed to get a train to Sydney for Easter and never made it. And um, yeah, so that's, that was 2002 and she's never been found since. <sighs> And, you know, when you had your story about your outback adventure, for, for mm. us, you know, big cities can be dangerous places, but often it's the remote areas that are even more because things can happen without people noticing. Yeah. And anyway, it's a longer story about all of that. But the first book that I wrote was called Missing Neve, Lessons from Loss, and it's a showcase of all of her artwork, her poetry, her writing, and her creativity and just explaining what happened because I didn't want all that stuff to get lost, you know, because out of all of her subsequent nieces and nephews, our eldest daughter was the only one that met Neve. Everyone else didn't, you know. So yeah. up on the bookshelf over here, I, I self-published that. And if you don't, and, and actually linking back to the whole ball of dinners thing, it's all about helping other people without expecting anything in return. So how can yeah. I help is one of the best questions out there. Being a go-giver, we had Bob Berg on here recently who wrote a book called being, Instead of Being a Go-Getter, Flip It and Be a Go-Getter. How can you go out yeah. and help somebody else any, you know, on any day? And I, I got the idea of the ball of dinners, which was how can I help? So I said, okay, I'm going to try and have a five-to-one ratio. Here are five things I can do to help you guys. Um, and here's my first ask was, I want to learn how to self-publish. And literally, that's how I learned how to publish that first book, Missing Neve. Anyway, so it, it's all this evolution. And, um, you know, the faster you can write your book, the faster more magic will be made, I'm sure. So yeah, I, I, need, I need to. We've got a great, um, a great editor that, that Chris has connected me to, Nusha. Okay. Amazing for you. And yeah. you could meet her one day okay. there's a perfect match there yeah she, she, actually, awesome. she actually wrote in about 30 minutes ago is that she, when you were talking about your uh your your trip with your daughter i believe at the time and she said does she want to turn that into a book because she was hearing all these stories so yeah i would i i would i, I would love for you to get a book out and i feel like it i feel because oh. like peter and i peter and i are both reese books it's like we know that it's just about meeting the right person to getting in a schedule and you obviously are a good writer and so yeah. um, we would, you know, if we could be a cog in the wheel just from talking to you or sharing somebody, I know Peter and I feel like that's like, that brings us so much joy just to know that we assist in, we're assisting in the creation process of somebody Thank else's you. beautiful thing. So absolutely. Thank you. And, oh, I, I really way, want that to happen. Yeah. The way we met, Kate, is because I met 
Greg Larkin through LinkedIn. And we had a conversation, we clicked, and I said, look, you need to come to Hong Kong and and talk about This Might Get Me Fired, his book. Next thing you know, I was actually on a a trip to New York, and I had a couple of extra days. I said, where should I stay over the weekend? And he went away for a couple of minutes, then he came back and said, oh, you should stay with us in Brooklyn. So I stayed with Greg and his wife, Paul, and their two kids, and he gave me the teenage punk rock tour of his youth, you know, around Red Red Hook and Vinegar Hill and all this. And then he creates Punks and Pinstripes. Then you come into that community and yeah. it's been amazing. So that's going to continue for sure as well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, ha- we have our call this week, so. <laughs> yeah. East Coast and West Coast. Chris, we need to get you in there as well. It's, it's a great, yeah. great uh, mix of people and, yeah, some really authentic, uh, great stories coming through there. So well, that might be a good way I, you, to finish you, up. You know, my, you know my email address and how to get a hold of me, Peter, so you just keep that in mind. You can work on that for sure. Very good, Kate. Thank you so much. Thanks for stretching it to to 80 minutes instead of the regular 60. And Chris, for your usual production magic. Uh, This was a great one. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for giving me the space to share some of my stories and asking me questions and prompting me and and inspiring me. And, you know, I'm definitely inspired and I'm I'm gonna put. I'm, I'm gonna get my list together and start acting on a few things on there because I, yeah, I really do want to write some of these stories because, yeah. And I want to my the, other, the other extension is Chris and I now have a, a virtual book tour. We did our first episode about a week and a week and a half ago, where we have four authors on one episode, and you get to introduce your book. And it could be, it's a random mix of people. You could have a cookbook with a children's book, with a business book, with a anything book, and uh, yeah, the, I, I. I'm still we'll, amazed. We'll give you a spin of Kate. We, we, you can totally come on as soon as your book's printed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like a date. Just know it's a date. Like the, the table is served. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And if I'm still in LA and still living here and have space, um, either of you are welcome to come and stay. Um, oh, thank, amazing. You. thank you. See you in Hong Kong at some stage, both of you. Too. Yes. Definitely. We're going to go to the Kentucky Derby. I think Chris just lives down the road from that. that I do. I'm, I'm one mile. So that would be an excuse if you guys wanted to come to some big event in the future. And I, I just finished reading this. Um, so it's the biography of Paul Vandora, the founder of Vans, skateboard shoes. Oh, and cool. uh, he ended up living in Kentucky and, and uh, having a resource and all that. But it's a great book about uh, entrepreneurship and creativity and just customer service. The focus is amazing. And Anyway, highly recommended. All right. I'm okay. done. Chris? It's, it's been great. Well, I'm Chris with Peter and Kate. Just trying you guys have a lot to be grateful for. We appreciate your time today, and we will see you soon.